Praise the Lord, church. Praise the Lord. Um, I'm just so excited and happy to be here uh, this morning to share the Word of God with you all. Um, I'm particularly excited to share from Psalms 34. It's one of my favorite scriptures. And so um, I do have to reiterate uh, how corny the name of the sermon series is, Mixtape. Um, as, as, as you can imagine, I don't know if you know, but um, uh, Benu is actually an aspiring DJ, so I'm sure that this was a, a brainchild of his. But uh, regardless, uh, I'm going to preach on regardless of the corny name. Um, so Psalms 34, before I jump into the scripture, I want to tell you about a story. Uh, it's a story about a young man that uh, attends this church. Um, I don't want to provide too many specifics about him, so I want to keep it a little bit ambiguous. Uh, let's call him Dave Matthew. And so Dave Matthew lives in Bucks County. Um, he has two girls, and he sits in the second row of the church uh, with his wife. Let's call her Beth. And so... Uh, they come every Sunday. Um, he's, he's a very, uh, if, I, if I were to say so myself, he's a very handsome young man, uh, very capable, very well-dressed every week, I think, you know. Uh, some would say he's very loud as well. Uh, some would say that his normal voice uh, talking volume is louder than what others uh, consider yelling and screaming. And so you'll hear him shouting hallelujah from time to time. Uh, and you may hear that hallelujah from the other side of the room, even. And uh, he gets very excited in uh, football games, watching football, and coming to church. And so you'll hear his volume increase um, as he's here. But I do want to take you to one Sunday in March when there was no hallelujah to be heard uh, from, from Dave. <clears throat> and when he was here, he was determined to keep his mouth shut because his, he was going through hell. And this was month three of this living hell that he was going through. Not only him, but his family. And he came here just tired and worn, angry and frustrated. And you see, I sat there that day determined not to worship God, not to praise God. My father had been diagnosed with all types of illnesses, things that I couldn't even understand or fathom. And I sat there bitter and angry at God. And I said, why? Why are all of these things happening? I can't even comprehend. And I don't even know who to turn to for help. And I sat there determined to keep my mouth shut. And I think that my silence was to the point that several folks afterwards came and asked me, hey, we didn't hear you praising God. And I said, you know what? Everything's fine. I gave the stock answer. Everything's okay. Things are good. Don't worry about me. But the truth was that everything was not fine. And everything was really, really bad. And everything was really frustrating and discouraging. And I had no hallelujah to shout that day. And I left the church with a hard heart. I said, there is, I cannot muster up the reason to praise God. And the Holy Spirit pursued me that week, and he reminded me of this verse, Psalms 34, verse 1. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And I immediately challenged God, and I said, what does that even mean? I don't even understand what that's supposed to mean. Am I supposed to just worship God in some superficial way? Am I supposed to worship God even though I'm going through hell on earth? 
Should I just muster up the energy and the will to worship God even though I have nothing to praise God for? But I'll tell you that that, the answer to that question is no. You see, I've learned over my, I've learned through my walk with Christ that there is a reason to worship God at all times. That there is a reason and an undeniable truth that we are living that compels us to worship God no matter the circumstance. He reminded me of the gospel message. He reminded me of the depth and the breadth of the gospel. He reminded me that I was a sinner doomed to damnation and eternal destruction. He reminded me that he sent his son to die on the cross and that he rose again three days later. He reminded me that now I was a child of God and that I had eternal hope in him and that one day I would have eternal joy and peace. And so, my brothers and sisters, the psalmist reminds us that no matter the circumstance, there is a reason to worship God. And I came back the next Sunday, and I shouted hallelujah, even though that not one ounce of the circumstance had changed. No matter, even though that things had actually gotten worse, I came the next Sunday, and I said, you know what? I can say with the psalmist, I will worship the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. This is the psalm I want to preach, from you, uh, preach for you today, Psalms 34. You know, before we jump into the scripture itself, I want to give you a little bit of background on the author, David. And so David one of, is one of the greatest kings that have ever ruled on the planet, ever ruled the earth. He was the king of Israel. He was well-respected by his own people. He was well-respected by his enemies. He ruled in such, a, in such a way that he is now legendary in terms of being one of the greatest kings to have ever ruled. But then this guy was also a great warrior and a soldier. This is the guy that killed a bear and a lion protecting his sheep. This is the guy that killed Goliath with stone and, and a slingshot. So he was a great king. He was a great warrior. He reminds me of Maximus. I was literally watching Gladiator a couple weeks ago, and I was like, this is how I imagine David. He's in the pit with all of the other slaves, and he's more skillful, he's smarter, he's rallying the troops. And so I imagine David in that same way that when he's on the battlefield, he's, he's a warrior that's able to just muster up everybody uh, and rally them around to defeat enemy after enemy after enemy. This is King David, the author of Psalms 34. But it doesn't stop there. What gives him the credibility to write a psalm about worship? What gives him the authority to write a psalm about worship? Well, if we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, we find that David is also a great worshiper. He is an example of worship. You see, they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, back to Israel. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was literally where God resided. He physically abode in the Ark of the Covenant. And so they're bringing it back, and he's there, and he's worshiping, and he's praising God with all of his energy, with all of his strength, to the point where his clothes start to fall off. Let me make it really clear. We do not need to worship God to the point where our clothes start to fall, fall off. We will get shut down quickly here. <laughs> but 
It does beg the question, this great king, this great warrior was so excited, so compelled to worship a God that was greater than him with all of his energy, with all of his strength. This is the author of the psalm. And in Psalms 34, verses 1 through 3, he invites us to worship God. So let's jump into the the scripture itself. Psalms 34, verses 1 through 3, David's call to worship. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name forever. You know, David just starts out the scripture with a resounding and determined manner that he's going to worship God no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. In the good times and in the bad times, he says, I'm going to worship God. You know, in the times of joy and in the times of sadness, I am going to worship God. In the times of friendship and in the times of loneliness, I am going to worship God. In the times of employment and in the times of unemployment, I am going to worship God. In the times of health and in the times of illness, he says, I am going to worship God. He is determined to worship God no matter the circumstance because he is confident. He is assured of his eternal salvation with the Lord. And so he is able to stand and shout with, to the top of his lungs, I will worship God. And you know what? I, I, he says in all times, because it's so easy sometimes in the good times to forget about worshiping God. You know, when everything's going right, when we get our job and we get promotion after promotion, you know, our bank accounts are fine, we have a roof over our head, we have food on our plates, we have friends, we have loved ones, we have health, we have all of these things, and we're just so comfortable, it's easy to forget to worship God. But David challenges us and says, Brothers and sisters, even in the good times, can we worship God? But then when tragedy hits and troubles come and trials and tribulations come, and we've been praying day after day, week after week, month after month, and we don't hear an answer, it's very easy to tend to forget about God. It's very easy to have a hard heart and to forget to worship God. And David challenges us, even then, Even in the hard times, even in the trial, even in the tribulation, when it seems like no one hears, can we worship God? David says, I will worship the Lord at all times. And if we look at verse 2, he also says, My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. As he asks us to worship God, he also asks us to boast in God. I mean, if anybody could boast in themselves, I think it's David. I mean, if I am David, I'm walking around like, hey, don't forget, I took out a bear and a lion. What have you done lately? Don't forget that I literally killed a lion. Don't forget that when all of the soldiers in the army of Israel sat back cowardly, hiding, it was me. I was the guy. And I don't, you know, as a kid, it was me. I'm the one with my slingshot and rock that came and killed that giant. I'm the man. 
if anybody could boast, it's David. And David says, what does he say? My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. He does just the opposite. He boasts in God. And he is encouraging us to boast in God as well. He is encouraging us to boast in God so that we can encourage those around us. You know, every now and then, since I am still a rotten, horrible, terrible sinner, I will admit, I will wake up and I will think, I'm unstoppable. I have a t-shirt. It says unstoppable. It's unstoppable. And I think, you know, look at my house. Look at my job. Look at my family. Look at where I am. David says, you have nothing to boast in except God himself. Nothing. You and I, we are nothing. And the only thing that we can boast in, my friends, the only thing that we can boast in is that we are the children of God, that we are his child and that he is our father. That is what we can boast in today because the rest of it is for naught. And when we boast in the Lord, it encourages those around us. It says, the humble hear and be glad. No one wants to hear a loudmouth that's always boasting in themselves. But there is something of value, something precious when you and I boast in God for his favor. When we boast in God for him delivering us out of our circumstances. Because it also encourages those around us that are going through trials and tribulations and difficulties to be encouraged, to not lose faith, and to not lose hope. And so as David calls us to worship, he says, bless him at all times and boast in God. And then as we look at that last verse in that passage, David also encourages us to worship with him. It says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Why? Because David knew that there was something powerful in corporate worship. David knew that there was something powerful when we came together, come together to worship God in truth and in spirit. You know, sometimes we may think, we may walk in here and think, well, you know, the, the only way the Holy Spirit and the Lord is going to work is through the pastors that are preaching, through the worship leaders that are leading, through the folks that are leading, the, reading the scripture and serving communion. But the truth is that God can work through the praise and the worship that comes from you yourself. And your praise and your worship may be what encourages the person around you. The, that may be the, the praise and the worship may be what really helps someone that is going through a difficult time and a difficult trial. You know, there have been so many Sundays that I have come feeling downtrodden, finding it difficult to worship, and then I'll look, and I'll look at folks, and I'll look at Pastor Binu worshiping, and I'll hear my brother Joe completely off-key worshiping in the back. Uh, who am I to speak? Um, and I'll hear that, and it's just a rallying cry. It's a rallying cry for me that we are soldiers in the army of the Lord. We are an army ready to do battle. We have come to get we. Not me, not myself, not my, I'm not by myself somewhere, you know, off in some wilderness, unable to fight, on, uh, having to fight on my own. I am with the people of God, the children of God. We are coming together. And the praise and the worship is like a rallying cry for us that we can, that we serve a good God, an almighty king of kings. 
And so David encourages us, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Brothers and sisters, it's not just the pastors and the worship leaders on a Sunday morning that God is working through. God is working through each and every one of us in our praise and in our worship and in our boasting of him to encourage each other because we are the army of God and we've come together as a congregation to go through these trials and tribulations together as a family. You know, as we continue through the scripture, verses 4 through 7, it gives us a glimpse of his testimony. It gives us a glimpse of why he even wrote this scripture or why he even wrote the psalm. It says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and served him, saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So you may be asking yourself, what were the circumstances surrounding why he wrote this psalm? And we find that when we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. And we see in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, that David rose and he fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Gath. We see that David is fleeing from Saul. And you may ask, why? Why is he running from Saul? Saul is the one that called him and made him uh, a warrior, in his, a soldier in his army. But the truth is that Saul had got, gone uh, strayed far, far away from the Lord at this point. He had strayed far away from the Lord, and he was very jealous of David. He was very jealous of the fact that the men were rallying around him. He was jealous of the fact, even more, that God was with him. And I think the number one reason, which I completely agree with, why he wanted to kill David, was that his daughter had a thing for David. And as the father of two daughters, I completely understand and resonate with his desire to kill David. <laughs> so he's that was probably like the tipping point. He's got my men, he's winning battle after battle, and now my daughter has a thing for him. I'm going to find that dude and cut his head. And so he's, 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 out, he's getting out of town. He's leaving. He's out of here. And so he starts to run, and he ends up in this place called Goth. And the Bible says that, of course, the servants that are in that land, they recognize him. They're like, this is David. This is the, that uh, uh, famous warrior, the legendary warrior. So much so that they literally break out into a Bollywood-style song and dance. And they say, Saul has struck his thousands, but David his ten thousands. They, they just start to sing. They're like, this is amazing. We captured da David. He's here. And, you know, David, I imagine, is petrified. Petrified. You know, I don't know how he thought he was going to hide since he is such a famous individual at this point. But he, he shows up, and they recognize him. They start to sing and dance, and they're celebrating they're going to, at, at, the, at the very least, he's become a POW that they're going to torture. Um, or, you know, more likely, they're going to kill him and make him an example. And so you can imagine David is petrified at this point. And so David comes up, or David comes up with this great idea. Let me act like a crazy person, which is not difficult for many of you, I understand. But this... 
was his bright idea. Let me act like a crazy madman, and maybe this king will let me go. I mean, it sounds like an insane plan, but when you're desperate, when you're facing death in the face, you're going you're, you're gonna to turn to whatever it takes. And so they bring him before the king, and he's foaming at the mouth, and he's mumbling, and he's acting like a crazy person. And somehow the plan works. The plan works. The king sits there and says, you know what? I have enough crazy people in town. I have enough crazy people right before me. I don't need another crazy person. Let me send this guy away. Get, get rid of him. Get, get him out of my sight. And David lives. David lives. That is the circumstance in which David writes the scripture. And I love the fact that as we understand his testimony, that he practices he practices what he preaches. He was in the trial of his life. He was in the tribulation of his life. He has no idea if he's going to live or die, but yet he is ready to worship and praise God at all times, brothers and sisters. He is ready to worship and praise God even when his life is on the line. Even when he is about to lose his life, he is writing the psalm, I will bless the Lord at all times. What a testimony to encourage us to worship God, no matter the circumstance. And he ascribes all glory and honor to God. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. You know, he could have taken some of the credit for himself. He could have said, hey, look at this awesome idea I came up with to be a crazy person. As insane as it sounds, but he gives glory to God. He could have taken some credit for his amazing acting abilities. I mean, probably Oscar-winning acting abilities to convince the king that he's a crazy person. But he doesn't do that. He gives all glory and honor to God. You know, he worships God for delivering him. And David boasts in the Lord for delivering him. As we look at this testimony, let it be an example to us that we too can worship and praise and boast in God, no matter the circumstance. You know, as we continue through the scripture, verses 8 through 14, David reminds us to fear God and not our circumstances. To fear God and not our circumstances. So let's read a little bit of what that means. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life, loves many days, that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You know, David's, one of David's key points in this scripture is to fear God and not to fear our circumstances. You know, this term fear God can sound so cliche. What does that even mean? What does it mean that we should fear God? Does it mean that we should fear him the way we fear death or the way we fear uh, heights or the way we fear spiders? I mean, how, what does it mean that we should fear God? Well, first, let's understand that fear is something that we are all very familiar with. 
I mean, David is intimately familiar with fear as he faced death head on. He knows what fear is all about. You know, we may have not have had many near-death experiences, but this is a very common emotion that we all understand. Uh, some of you may know that uh, we hold a charity event every year for Bombay Teen Challenge called Set Beautiful Free. And as part of that event, I've had the opportunity and privilege to work with two of the most fearful men I've ever met in my life. One is sitting here in the back. His name is John Korean. And the other is Jim Verghese, that's a missionary now living in India. And they are, you know, how are we going to raise the money? How are we going to pull off this event? What are we going to do? You know, now going into year four, John has actually gotten much better. But I still get a weekly call from Jim. He is petrified, having this nervous breakdown of how are we going to do conduct this event. And so I'm, uh, you know, not only the, the, the leading the planning, but I'm also the team psychologist. And so I, I help him work through, you know, those fears. But maybe that's not your fear. Maybe you have a fear of heights. Maybe you have a fear of flying. Maybe you have a fear of clowns, which I think is really weird and odd. But maybe that's your fear. Maybe you have a fear of loneliness. Maybe you have a fear of losing a loved one or losing your job. You know, whatever that may be, is the Bible saying, you know, we have all experienced fears in different ways. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about fear. The scripture talks about two kinds of fear. It talks about the fear of God, and it talks about all of these other types of fear. And so is the Bible saying that we should fear God the same way we fear heights and, and spiders and, and, and clowns and loneliness and joblessness? Is that what God is saying? No. God is not saying that at all. You see, this other type of fear that causes us to fear losing our loved ones or losing our job or losing... Uh, anything that is close to us is really driven out of our, our, our deep desire to want to control everything around us. And it's our fear of losing what's important to us. And so this fear typically wants to make us hide or it wants to make us micromanage every little aspect of what's important to us. The issue with that is that type of fear pulls us away from God. It actually takes us away from God when we fear something at that level. And God is saying to abandon those fears. Do not fear in that way. Isaiah 41, verse 10. It says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. So God is saying, do not be consumed with all of these fears. Do not be consumed by the fear of man and the fear of loneliness and the fear of losing our job and the fear of illness. and the f All of these fears, do not be consumed by those fears. We are the children of God and we serve a great God that is greater than all of these fears, that is more powerful than all of these fears. And so we don't need to micromanage every bit of that circumstance. We don't need to run and hide, but we can trust in God because he is greater. And so the Bible says there is a type of fear that we should have, and that is the fear of God. It says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. You know, I struggled. I struggled really, I struggled to find the perfect analogy uh, for this uh, fear of God. 
And so I started uh, searching the internet and I found our friend John Piper. Some of you may know him. He's a famous pastor, evangelist, preacher, teacher. And so I'm going to completely rip off what he said because if he can't say it right, I don't know who can. Um, so he says, you know, imagine that you are exploring an Arctic glacier. Let's just be really clear. I will never, ever, ever be exploring an Arctic glacier. But imagine that you are exploring an Arctic glacier and you're caught up in a terrible storm. And the storm is so strong that you fear you'll blow right over the side of the cliff. But then you discover a cleft in the cliff where you can hide and find shelter. You know, at first there was this fear that the storm would kill you. But when you found a refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe, not everything in the feeling of fear went away. You know, what did vanish was the life-threatening part. You know, when you found that safe place and you were in that storm, that, that life-threatening element of fear does vanish. But at the same time, there remained a trembling and an awe, the wonder of feeling that you would never want to tangle with a storm that's as large and adversarial as this. Piper says, the fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place. Hear that again. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. The fear of God is when you have a safe place left of the storm to watch right in the middle of it. The thrill of being there in the center of the awful power of God, but protected by him. The thrill of being in the center of the awful power of God, and yet protected by him. Brothers and sisters, this is why David says, fear God and not your circumstance. Fear God and not your trial. Fear God and not your illness. Fear God and not your tribulation. You know, as we go through things that are overwhelming in life, know that God is greater than all of our fears and that his power is something that we can stand back and be in awe of. We can be in awe of the great power of God, knowing that he has that storm under control and he's put us in a safe place and that storm may be raging out of control, and we may not know when that storm is going to end. We may not know what's going to happen next. But God has found that safe place in the cleft of that glacier for us to be protected by him. You know, when my father was diagnosed, I just walked around with a pit in my stomach and with tears in my eyes day after day, week after week, month after month. I was fearful for the future. I was fearful for our family. I was fearful for my mother. I was fearful for the unknown. And the fear was paralyzing to the point that it was just this knot that was twisting and tied up in my stomach, difficult to breathe at times. I would be driving in my car, and the fear would be overwhelming to the point where tears would just stream from my eyes. And I lived in this fear. And I would scream and I would yell. And I feared this illness. 
and I feared this unknown more than I feared God. But the psalmist reminded me here that we, you and I, we can fear God and not our circumstances. We can fear God because he is in control. We can fear God because he is the God of these il this illness. Fear God and not our circumstance. Finally, when we go to verses 15 through 22, you know, David reminds us that he cares for his people. David reminds us that God, the king of all the earth, he cares for his people. He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You know, there's a lot in this passage, but I want to just call out a few items. You know, one thing that David highlights is how God cares for his people. And there's three ways in particular that he cares for you and I. You know, it says that we can take heart knowing that God sees us. He sees us during our time of trial. That he hears our cry. He hears us. He sees us. He hears us. And he is near. He is near the brokenhearted. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He hears his ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, he hears them. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. These are promises that we can hold on to. These are promises that we can take confidence in. These are promises that we can hold fast to no matter what the trial or tribulation. You know, we can take comfort knowing that God has not gone on vacation, that God has not left us, that God is not too busy, that God is not off in a distant land. The psalmist says that his eyes and ears are towards us and he is near us. I mean, this God who created the sun, the moon, and the stars, this God that created the heavens and the earth, this God that created the, the beasts of the field and the birds in the air and the fish in the sea that holds all of the planets together. I want us to think about this great and awesome God. And the psalmist says that he sees you and he sees you and he sees you and he sees me. Even as he sees the billions of people in this world and the billions and stars and the planets, he sees each and every one of us. And not only does he see us, he hears us amongst all the noise, amongst all the clatter and the clutter and all the, the chaos he hears. His ears are trained to hear your cry and my cry. And he's not far away. He's near us. He's, he's right there. He's right with us through our trial and through our tribulation. You know, I can't imagine the range of emotions that David experienced as he's facing death, as he's looking death in the face. If anyone should have felt abandoned, 
If anyone should have felt like I am alone and there is no one that cares for me and there's no one that loves me, if anyone had a right to have a little bit of a gripe in that circumstance, it was David. But David is the one that says, God is with me. He hears me. He sees me. He is with me through this trial. And quite frankly, that is what gave me confidence as well. You know, as, I, as we continued to search out answers on how we could address what was happening with my father and as, how we could address, you know, all of the different complications and as we talked to people after people and as, I, as we prayed and as we took one step forward and then three steps backwards, I felt like, does anyone hear? Does anyone see? Does anyone care? And the psalmist reminded me, you may not understand why you're going through what you're going through, but take confidence in knowing that David does see your pain. David does hear your, uh, that God does see your pain, that God does hear your cry, and that God is near us, is with you. Brothers and sisters, that gives us reason to praise and to worship God that he cares for his people. And finally, if we look at the other key point that David is making, he says, not only does he see us and hear us, and not only is he with us, but he promises to deliver us. He promises to deliver us. Stop, period, done. Deliver us. Verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. I mean, this is a huge promise. This is huge. It doesn't say that he just promises to deliver us on Sundays or on Thursdays or when he's in the mood. He says he promises to deliver us through all of this. Do we believe this? Do we really believe this as the children of God? Do we believe it like we believe that the sky is blue and the grass is green? Do we believe it? like we believe that we can breathe oxygen when we inhale and exhale and we won't die? Do we believe this verse that David says? David says in verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. He doesn't say, he doesn't have, he, he says this with such conviction. And it was so difficult for me to understand. It may be so difficult for us to understand how can David say this when I'm going through this trial and it doesn't seem like there's any insight? And the only way that I could truly understand this verse in verse 22, which says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Is when I actually began to understand and believe the gospel. Not just understand it with my mind, but believe the gospel with all of my heart. You see, until I believed it was just words on a page, until I believed it was just words that really didn't make sense in terms of the application, but when I began to understand the gospel message, I began to understand what God meant, or what David meant when he said, God always delivers us from our afflictions and take refuge in him, and those who take refuge in him will never be condemned. You see, God's promises are so much bigger than we can even understand. You see, God has promised to deliver us. He's promised to deliver us from eternal damnation and death. He has promised to deliver us 
and give us a new life and a new body. A new life and a new body. He has promised that the day is coming where every tear will be wiped away and there will only be peace and joy. He has promised to deliver us, my brothers and sisters, so we may need to endure hardship for a time. We may need to endure persecution for a time. We may need to endure loneliness for a time. We may need to endure sickness for a time. We may need to endure trials and tribulations. But ultimately, please take heart in knowing that we will be delivered and we will reign with him in a new heaven and a new earth and every tear will be wiped away and only joy will abound. He will deliver us. Amen. He will deliver us. This is the truth of the gospel. And when we not only understand the words, but when we believe it with our hearts, we will be freed to worship him. When we truly begin to believe that we were sinners, hopelessly lost and doomed to eternal damnation, but God sent his only son to die on the cross and that he rose again and that he now reigns with him and that if we are ready to repent and believe that we are his children, we have an eternal hope that one day we will be with him. This is our hope in the gospel. And this, my brothers and sisters, is why we all can say with the psalmist, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. May God bless you with these words. I'd like to just uh, pray as we get ready to move to the next. Lord, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Lord God, that you are here in our midst. Thank you, Lord God, that you are a good God and that you are with us in the times of trial and tribulation. Lord, thank you, Lord, that we can now say with the psalmist that I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Lord God, it's not because we are strong. It's not because of our own capabilities, but it is because you have lifted us up out of the miry clay and that you have put our feet on a strong foundation. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us in the time of trial. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us and that we can worship you at all times. May God bless you with these words.